0: We have been moving very slowly through the book of Romans all summer long, and the last couple of weeks, uh, Pastor Jay and Pastor Corey taught. Uh, we went through Romans chapter 12, and then Romans 13, and I, I have some encouraging news that the uh, light is at the end of the tunnel. Like, we're getting very close to the end of Romans. Um, but as a refresher, briefly, before we dive into our talk, Romans has four main units of thought. As a way to break it down at a high level, Romans has four main and primary units of thought. Paul is writing, obviously, to this urban set of house churches in the most influential political center in the known world at the time, in the center of Rome. And in these four units of thought, we see Jesus functioning as rescuer, From chapters one through four, we then see Jesus positioned as a representative, as the one who is the second Adam or the perfect Adam or the perfect human in chapters five through eight. He's a representative. And then we see in nine, 10, and 11, Jesus as a reconciler between Jew and Gentile, that he reconciles people together, that he is uh, establishing a new family in himself. And then in the latter portion of the book, in chapters 12 through 16, the very practical side of Romans, we see Jesus functioning as a restorer. Not only is he reconciling people together, but he is restoring the way in which those reconciled individuals and communities live together ethically to be unified together. And so that provides, again, high-level vision. And remember, Paul is gospelizing, so to speak, the people in Rome. He bookends the whole letter with the proclamation of the gospel. And we talked at the very beginning that the gospel's not the Roman's road. Actually, a couple weeks ago, my family had two elderly women that showed up to their front door, knocked on the door. And my mom's like, who in the world is this? Like, who's showing up to her door? All these thoughts go through her mind. And there were some ladies from a local church doing some witnessing. Anybody ever have folks come to your house and they witness? You know, they're coming, they're trying to convert you, right? And they had a little pamphlet, you know, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And then it walks through very systematically the Romans road, you know? And then it has a big question mark in it. In the very bottom, in small letters, it says, tune in to 88.1 FM. And I'm like, is the, question, like, the answer to the question not in the pamphlet? You got to listen to the radio station. But we've had to retrain our mind in knowing that the gospel is not the Roman's road. Salvation is an implication of the gospel. It's the soundtrack of the gospel. The soundtrack of the gospel is redemptive. It's restorative, but the gospel is a story. It is the proclamation or the royal announcement of Jesus as king and the launching or the inauguration of his kingdom here on earth. So when we witness, we are testifying to a reality, not just an idea or a doctrine, but a reality that Jesus Christ is a resurrected king and his kingdom has been inaugurated. And the grand renewal project of the world has begun. And so Paul is speaking to this idea of the gospel at the beginning of the book and at the very end of the book. Now, in Romans chapters 12 through 16, we do see Paul functioning very pastorally. Remember, Paul's not just a theologian. He is wise, he's smart, he's a scholar among scholars, but he's a missionary and he's pastoral. And we see the pastoral heart of Paul in Romans chapters 12 through 16. And he really emphasizes love. It's funny, I feel like Paul gets a lot of flack. But Paul speaks of love more than Jesus does. Paul speaks of love in 1 Corinthians 13 and Romans chapter 12 and 13. Love is everywhere. Love is in the air with Paul. It's everywhere. And he emphasizes love as the center kind of bonding agent for community in this new family. And this is very consistent with Pauline writing. Most of his letters begin with dense theology and it always moves into practical theology or ethics or a way of living. You could say that it's the lecture followed by the lab. And, and just a quick note, real quick, one of my dearest friends and mentors, someone who's probably had the most impact on my life that's human, it's not Jesus himself, um, is here today. And uh, his name is Matt Leroy. And Matt, can you just raise hand? You're like, you're like inconspicuous over in the corner. Um, Matt is like the original Silver Fox. Um, he is a collision of, if John Mark Comer, John Wesley, and Michael Jordan all came together, you get Matt Leroy. And I, I love this man. And he has coined this idea of from lecture to lab. We have talked about this before. And Paul does this. He goes from lecture to then let's get our hands dirty and get into the lab. He is theologian followed by pastor, or for some of us, presentation followed by worksheet. How many of you guys remember middle school or elementary school or high school, and you had your teacher that gave you all these ideas, and then all of a sudden you have a worksheet that you do in a group? Remember group work in, like, middle school? Uh, I I was a talker, which I know you're totally surprised by that. I love group work because we could talk and hang out. But this is what Paul's doing, presentation and then practice. I find it to be very helpful. He always provides for us the indicative, the why, and then the, impl- the implications, therefore, the imperative. In Romans 14, I want to give a kind of a high level overview of what's happening in Romans 14. There are tensions that have arose in this diverse, multi ethnic group of people in, in, in this Roman house church. And we have Gentile Christians and we have Jewish Christians. Now, at this point in history, Gentile Christians are kind of the dominant majority in Rome at the time, and Jewish Christians are actually the minority in number. And in this chapter, there is this tension around specifically food laws and Torah observance, as well as sacred day observance, which, interestingly enough, were very closely tied and and had symbolism of a high commitment to the Torah. So uh, observation of food laws, as well as sacred days, was deeply connected to piety and commitment, to the point where some Jewish Christians said, you know what, we're not going to eat any meat at all. We're going straight vegetarian. Like no meat at all. We're going vegetarian. As a sign of piety and commitment to the Torah. So they're still trying to wrestle with the role of Torah Jesus, Messiah, and righteousness, and Paul is kind of entering into these waters, and then you also have Gentile Christians who are experiencing freedom in Christ, and they recognize that Torah, or the law, is not needed for obtaining righteousness, and there's this tension on both ends. One can lean towards legalism, that's a language that we've heard before, where it's like, all law, everything, And then on the far side, you have what's called, and I've mentioned this before, antinomianism, which is to say, like, laws don't even matter, like, we're free in Christ. So because of that, we can kind of do whatever we want to do. And Paul is saying, that's not it. That's not it at all. And in 14, they're going back and forth with this tension at the table. There is tension at the table in Rome. I don't know about you, but there are certain restaurants I just don't like. There are places when friends suggest we should go eat there. I get pretty upset. And it really dampens the mood for me. And I'd be curious to know what restaurants those are for you. For me, if if, if we're about to hang out and you suggest us going to eat at Core Life Eatery, it will dampen the whole mood. Your food choice just impacted our fellowship. Does, it, does that resonate with anyone? I'm not paying $12 for a bowl of chicken broth. I'm not doing it. Like, no. I remember one time we went to Core Life, no joke, and then afterwards I went to Steak and Shake and got a cheeseburger. <laughs> I'm like, I could get like a burger, some fries, and a milkshake for like $8 at Steak and Shake. I'm paying $15 for some chicken broth it dampens the mood. It impacts us. Where we go to eat at places, or even go to someone's house. You ever been to someone's house and they haven't told you what they're cooking? And they bring it out, and you're like, oh, dear God, I got to trudge through these waters. (laughs) You know, I wish we were in one of those cultures where it was like appropriate to leave food on the plate. Because in our culture, you got to clean the plate. And I'm just like doing circles with my fork the whole time. Dampens the mood. And we're seeing here food choices impacting fellowship. There are tensions at the table in Romans 14. And Paul is talking about how some have strong convictions. Jewish Christians have very strong convictions, a strong conscience. But then also, others have less strong convictions, Gentile Christians, over tertiary and secondary matters. Not core matters, but tertiary and secondary matters. And Paul is trying to pastor through this. Paul is, I believe, urging these two groups to get along, number one, and be hospitable toward one another, learning how to be siblings, Learning how to be siblings. More specifically, he gets into talking about being a stumbling block and how we shouldn't create stumbling blocks for others in their faith journey. And a stumbling block, quite literally, is something that is meant to um, get in the way of your forward progress on a path. It is to impede a journey. And he's saying some of you are creating stumbling blocks And when we create stumbling blocks for other believers, it is sin. It is not the way of Christ. It is not the way of the Lord. So though you might have freedom, don't put a stumbling block in front of your friend or your family member, really, your brother or sister in Christ. If you have a strong conviction, don't put a stumbling block in front of your brother or sister in Christ over, again, secondary or tertiary matters, specifically here around food observance and sacred day observance. Now, Paul I don't believe is just challenging them to, you know, fight nice kids. Have you heard that phrase before from your mother or your father? Fight nice kids. Paul's not doing that. What Paul is doing is he is saying to them, remember who your Lord is. It's not just fight nice kids. It is remember who Christ is. Let's look at Romans 14:6 again. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. Just in this one verse, we see Lord twice, or three times actually, and we see God twice. In this whole chapter, 23 times the word God, Lord, or Christ is used. You know how many verses are in chapter 14? 23. Now, it's easy for us to, to just talk about this dispute amongst Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians about food laws and observing um, the Sabbath and sacred days. And we miss the Christological emphasis of Paul at the center of Romans 14. Twenty-three times God, Lord, or Christ is used. That's significant, I think. And it reveals to me that he is saying not just fight nice, learn how to get along at the table, but remember who God is. Remember who Christ is. Remember who your Lord is, the one that unites us all. Christ is central and Christ is primary, not secondary cultural convictions. However, when tertiary convictions or secondary convictions become elevated as absolute, that is when they become idolatry. When secondary issues and convictions on either end of the spectrum where you're trying to observe the law, you have a high level of conviction, or you're like, well, there's freedom in Christ. You know, either way, if the things that you're engaging in are elevated as absolute above Christ, it is idolatry. And if you're putting a stumbling block in front of a brother or sister, it is not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of Christ. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message of Romans 14, 6, where he says this. What's important in all of this is that if you keep a holy day, keep it for God's sake. If you eat meat, eat it to the glory of God and thank God for prime rib. (laughs) That's like literally Eugene Peterson's words. If you're vegetarian, eat vegetables to the glory of God and thank God for broccoli, which I am not one of those. (laughs) Let me tell you what. But if you are, thank God and give God glory for it. Christ is central. Paul has a high view of Christ, and he's reinserting that importance in Romans chapter 14. It's not about secondary issues. It's about being reconciled and living as a restored community now as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. For you growing up, where did most conflict begin with your siblings? At the table or in the restaurant. The only time I ever punched my brother was at a Cracker Barrel. (laughs) My brother's in his 20s now, and he still reminds me. Remember that time you hit me in Cracker Barrel? And I'm like, I've been forgiven, and there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Things start happening at the dinner table, do they not? There's conflict that arises. Start picking and poking at your brother or sister, making those, those cuts that kind of go deep. And then voices get louder. And depending on the culture you grew up in, there are certain octaves that you can go to and remain at the table. But then there always is a moment where it gets so heated where someone pushes back off the table. They get up and they leave. Anyone ever experienced that before? I have. Tensions at the table. It's where conflict usually comes to the surface. But there's something I think that Paul is also trying to communicate in Romans 14. And it's this. The table matters. The table matters. Ten times the word eat is used in Romans 14. Ten times the word eat is used in Romans 14. There is an underlying, I think, message, not just fight nice, and yes, Christ is king, but the table matters. Not just who you eat with matters, but how you eat with matters. Better yet, not just who you do life with, but how you do life with them matters. Not just who you fellowship with, but how you fellowship with them matters. Because divisions... Begin when we leave the table. Divisions begin when we leave the table. There are people in your life that you have not reconciled with, and I would be a betting man by saying you probably haven't eaten with them in a long time. Divisions begin when we leave the table. Why is that? Because the table is the place of unity. The table unites by default. The table is what John Wesley refers to as a chief means of grace or a discipline or a practice that we orient ourselves around. This is why in our rhythm of life, gathering is an important rhythm. Because we need to be, as a people, gathering not just on Sunday morning corporately, but around the table with our community, with our neighbors, with our coworkers. We need to orient ourselves around the table. The table is the place of unity. It unites us. And when we leave the table, divisions begin. And when division begins, bitterness comes to the surface. It's hard to love those we don't eat with. It's hard to have mercy on those we don't commune with. And I think Paul is pushing us back to the table. The New Testament scholar Michael Bird says, food was central to Christian fellowship. Sharing food and participating in common meals was one of the most distinctive features of the Christian life. Potlucks were happening in the first century, just like they did in 1988. When I first came to this building, I thought to myself, I wonder how many covered dish luncheons they've had at this place. <laughs> we kind of joke about it. Like, believers love to eat, right? You know, I grew up in a Baptist church. We used to eat every Sunday. We're like, yeah, it's kind of funny, you know? But it's an ancient practice. Eating, fellowshipping, coming to the table is an ancient practice. Christ, hear this. Christ sends his spirit for us to live and empowers us to live by his spirit, but he gives us his meal to live around. He sends his spirit for us to live, but he gives us his meal to live around and to practice around. Keep in mind, when we come to the table, it is called the Lord's Supper. It's called the Lord's Table. And in Romans 14, people have gotten confused and they're saying it's our table. It's not your table. It's not my table. It is the Lord's table. He has instituted it as a sacrament. He has given it to us as a rhythm and as a practice. It is not ours. We don't control the table of fellowship. Christ does. But when we come to the table, it does a couple of things. It slows us down. I read an interesting article yesterday in The Atlantic from a few years ago talking about how the couch has replaced the table. But then I also saw the numerous amounts of psychological research on the benefit of families eating at the table, like deep neurological research on the power of the table. It slows us down and it makes us present. When was the last time you slowed down enough were able to look at someone in the eyes and just listen? I know I'm not good at it. You might not be good at it. Some of you are good at it. Robbie Blankenship, so good at it. Sarah, here in the back, Sarah, raise your hand. Sarah's a therapist. I love Sarah. Listening to Sarah talk, I told her it's like an essential oil diffuser. Like it's just peaceful. And wouldn't you know, they're both like going into, Like Sarah's already a therapist. Robbie's going into therapy. I'm like, we all need to be like therapists. You know, <laughs> be present, listen, ask questions at the table. It slows us down. There's tons of research on the benefit of it. And I think families, we need to go back to the table as well. We need to go back to the table. Romans 14:7 hit me this week. A bit different because Paul is pastoring here in this chapter, um, but for just a brief moment he does get philosophical. Paul gets a little philosophical for just a second, and Romans 14:7 struck me as I was preparing to teach. Here's what he says: For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us. Dies for ourselves alone. Paul goes from pastoring to making this statement that is absolute. A statement of reality. Most of the time when Paul is teaching, he will use you in the plural. You, you or y'all, for us in the South. You guys, y'all. But Paul says here, for none of us. Now, you could say, well, maybe he's just talking about believers. But I actually think in some ways, he is actually speaking to a human fact rather than a situational set of instruction. The question for you today around this idea is what are you living for? Who are you living for? That is the question. And the mantra of our day and our time and our moment in society in 2022 is this. Live for yourself. This is the mantra. I've seen all the memes on Google Images. They're everywhere. Live for yourself. But Paul says none of us lives for ourselves alone. When we speak of living for ourselves, what we are essentially saying is that our greatest pursuit is our happiness and our success. And this is our greatest pursuit. But the problem with such an idea is that happiness and success is not our greatest pursuit. Success comes from the things we pursue. Happiness comes as an external implication of the things we pursue. Happiness is an external emotion that we feel. And as Corey said last week, you can't command emotions. Our greatest pursuit as humans is living for something. We call this meaning. Our greatest pursuit is actually the pursuit of meaning. Meaning. In the um, middle of the century, Viktor Frankl, who's a very influential psychiatrist, wrote a a seminal book uh, called Man's Search for Meaning. Has anybody read Man's Search for Meaning and you've heard of it before? Awesome. Yes, so good. Viktor Frankl was a concentration camp survivor. And as a psychiatrist, he did some study and work to see those that survived and those that did not survive. And eventually, he gets into uh, and coins this phrase, logotherapy, which I'll get into in just a moment. But here's what Viktor Frankl says in The Man's Search for Meaning. Because he says that it's actually not pleasure or happiness or success that is man's ultimate pursuit, which was a Freudian idea at the time. He actually says that it is actually meaning. This man's deepest pursuit. Here's what he says. For success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue, and it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself, or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than one's self. This is Viktor Frankl, a Jewish psychiatrist, wrote this 70 years ago, roughly, or, or 50 years ago. Meaning is our greatest pursuit. Who or what do we live for? It isn't happiness. It isn't success. In 2017, a very um, popular TED talk came out by Emily Esfahani Smith, who is a psychology instructor at the University of Pennsylvania at the time. And this talk that she um, gave has 5.4 million views. And basically, she spent time around this idea of the pursuit of happiness and that all the data actually shows that the more you pursue happiness, the less happy you are and that the pursuit of meaning is actually at the center of our human psyche. It's not happiness and it's not success. She ends up writing this book called Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life that Matters. And in it, she comes up with four pillars of meaning. Four pillars of meaning. And here they are for you briefly. The first is belonging. The second is purpose. The third is storytelling. And the fourth is transcendence. Now, keep in mind, this is not a Christian book at all. This is coming from a psychology instructor and a journalist from the University of Pennsylvania. And I found it so fascinating. In fact, I came to this TED Talk through a lot of different avenues this this past week that really struck me. And it struck me because she is so close. She's so close. Yet, so far. Here is the problem. True and lasting meaning isn't crafted. Crafted. True meaning or expressed intention, significance, and essence isn't made. It is discovered. True meaning isn't made. It is discovered. It comes to us. A project or a piece of art is created. A painting is crafted. Some sort of Family heirloom is created, but meaning isn't created. I've gotten really into a show, some of you know this, on Netflix called Alone. Anybody seen Alone before? Good, I'm not alone in it. <laughs> that's great. Um, they take 10 contestants, put them in the wilderness by themselves with a camera, and they have to survive. The person that's the last one standing wins, I think it's $100,000, $500,000, something like that. All of these folks are survival experts. And something happens in every single season. And almost every contestant, they all are able to bring with them a picture of their family. And they'll get to about day 25. They're doing decent. Day 30, day 35. And pretty soon you begin to see their mental psyche break down. Their emotions begin to shift and they start reflecting on this picture. And what ends up happening often is that they end up tapping out, though they have everything to survive, they tap out because they want to get back to their family. Here's the tension. There is some meaning in a picture. There is some meaning in a created photograph. But true meaning is in the physical presence of their family. Created meaning is not the same as discovered meaning. And we live in a moment that seeks to create meaning rather than discover meaning. And it's as though we're living with a photograph of our family, but we're not experiencing the warm embrace of our brother or our sister or our spouse, or our dad. All we see is a picture of it, and we're left wondering and hoping. We live in a moment, friends, that is experiencing a crisis of meaning because the pursuit is to create it imminently within the created world rather than receiving the discovered meaning from a transcendent world that is beyond us. Timothy Keller talks about this in his book, Making Sense of God. And here's what he says about created meaning. Created meaning is less rational, less communal, and less durable. It's less rational, less communal, and less durable. If meaning can be made, if it can be crafted, An individual could live alone for the entirety of their life and experience ultimate fulfillment and happiness, if this is true. Yet, this isn't the case, as demonstrated in the Netflix show alone, because true happiness actually requires meaning. True contentment requires meaning. True sense of Enjoyment in life requires meaning. And meaning actually requires living for something beyond yourself. And Jesus calls this denying yourself. Denying yourself. And when we make created things the absolute good, they always end up fragile. If you yourself become the most absolute good, you live for yourself, it produces selfishness and narcissism. If you make people your highest good, Tim Keller says it creates racists because you become tribalistic. If family becomes your highest good, it might produce patriarchy. These are created things and they're beautiful and they have significance and meaning, but they are not absolute we have to be able to discover meaning, created meaning. If you are in the pursuit of meaning in your life right now, and you're creating it, it is not durable. It is fragile. But discovered meaning is durable. And as I said, living for yourself, the mantra of our day, produces by default narcissism or extreme self-involvement. Paul calls this vainglory in Galatians chapter 5 or conceit. Loving yourself and living for yourself are different. Love yourself, yes, but don't live for yourself. Loving for yourself is a call of Jesus. Living for yourself is the call of the empire of Babylon and the empire of our moment and our day. Do not pursue Living for yourself. Romans fourteen eight. so we continue our journey. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Now remember Smith's first pillar from her TED Talk in her book, Power of Meaning. What was the first pillar? Belonging. Paul says whether we live or die, we What? Belong to the Lord. In ancient Greek philosophy, which was known in and popularized in the Roman world at this time in the first century, there was transcendent meaning. There was transcendent meaning. There was a meaning behind the universe, there was rationality and objective uh, reality that gave meaning to life. This idea was taught and referenced by philosophers like Plato, Heraclitus, and Marcus Aurelius, which, think Russell Crowe's dad in the movie Gladiator. You seen Gladiator before? Russell Crowe, the actor, his dad is Marcus Aurelius. Anyway, some of you are like, ah, that's an old movie, man. Jeez, I feel old. This meaning taught by Greek philosophers and Roman philosophers was called the Logos. It was called the Logos. Philo, who was a Greek-speaking Jewish philosopher, about 50 years before Christ, wrote that, and I quote, the Logos of the living God is the bond of everything, holding all things together and binding all the parts and prevents them from being dissolved and separated. According to Philo and the Middle uh, Platonists, The Logo was both imminent or within within the created world, and at the same time, the transcendent or the outside world, or the divine mind, the transcendent divine mind. So for them, meaning was found in the Logos. And in John chapter 1, we see an apostle of Jesus who writes, In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him, and not even one thing came into being that has come into being. The Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Half a millennia prior to Jesus, Greek and Roman philosophers were pontificating and, and, and talking about the idea of meaning. Who and what gives meaning to life? Who to live for? What to live for? How this world is ordered? The intention behind the universe, behind the cosmos. And it just so happens that the meaning of life comes to us as a person, The meaning of life comes to us in the flesh, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God incarnate. Think about people who debate the GOAT within basketball. Like, you know, those people that's always going back and forth. Who's the GOAT, you know? Is it LeBron? Is it Michael? Is it Kobe? Then people throw in random people occasionally, I don't know, like Allen Iverson or something. And I'm like, can you please stop? No. You know, I don't know. Or Bill Russell or whoever. Oscar Robertson. Who's the GOAT? We're debating, but can you imagine for just a second that we read in John 1, in the beginning was the goat. The goat became flesh, made his dwelling among us. Stop debating, the goat is now in flesh. We see that Jesus is meaning incarnate. Meaning isn't an idea, meaning is a person. The philosopher and mystic Howard Thurman says, God is the fact of life from which all other things take their meaning and reality. Just as a logo gives meaning to a product, Jesus gives meaning to life itself. A logo gives meaning to a product, but Jesus gives meaning to life itself. You ever gone to Goodwill and bought a clothing item and there's no brand on it? And you're like, what is this? You know? Or like maybe it had like a Hanes sticker that was like all scratched off or something in the neckline. <laughs> you're like, what is this? You know? But if you find something that's like Polo Ralph Lauren or Vineyard Vines or, you know, Patagonia, you're like, oh, I found a gem at Goodwill. Logos give meaning. Just as Jesus, the Logos, gives meaning to life itself and meaning to the community That gathers around the table. Whether we are vegetarians or we love pig pickings, and some of us do, we live for Jesus. We live for the Christ. Our meaning in life is discovered in Jesus. We don't create Jesus, we discover him. So when you ask who or what you are living for this morning, we're talking about Jesus, I do want to jump off of Smith's proposal a bit with the four pillars. That meaning is found in these four concrete ideas. The first, belonging specifically to Christ and his church. We see this in verse 8 of Romans 14. That to find meaning requires belonging to Christ and his church. Martin Seligman, who's a psychologist at UPenn, says this, and I read this this week in some of my research, that meaning comes from belonging to and serving something beyond yourself. Belonging to Christ and his church. This means that living for yourself actually produces meaninglessness. If you live for yourself, you experience a meaningless life. If you live For something, if you belong to Christ and his church, you will experience meaningfulness. The second pillar was purpose. In verse 18, Paul expounds on this idea of serving Christ, his church, and his world. Purpose is found in serving Christ, his church, and his world. The third third pillar is storytelling. What do we do as a people of God? What does it mean to testify? What does it mean to proclaim the gospel? It's to tell the story of Jesus and your story as a part of it. And where does that happen? At the table. The practice of the table is a practice of storytelling. The fourth pillar is transcendence. And this is why I think she goes awry. Because for her, transcendence is about a feeling that you get. When you experience awe and wonder, which is great, but what happens when the feeling doesn't come? It's not, it's not durable, it's fragile. But for us, spending time in prayer with a resurrected King Jesus provides for us that sense of transcendence. Paul echoes this idea of giving thanks to God in verse 6, so we would call this prayer. So, if meaning in life's intention is ultimately found in a person, then our deepest meaning is only found in knowing that person. If meaning and life's intention is ultimately found in a person, the Logos, Christ Jesus, then our deepest meaning and yearning is only found in knowing that person. To become intimately aware of and connected to that person at a heart level or at a love level. Our deepest yearning is what the philosopher Esther Meek calls the longing to know. Our deepest sense of meaning comes in the longing to know. Here's what she says The goal of knowing is not complete information, it is what? Communion. The goal of knowing is not complete information, it is communion. So, where does this bring us back to? The table. This is where we know Christ. This is where we know his bride. This is where we find a sense of belonging. This is where we find a sense of purpose. This is where we find a sense of transcendence. We come back to the table. At the core of meaning is knowing. You can't just live for yourself because you yearn to not only know yourself for sure, but also God and others. Coming back to the table, I'm going to, The band to come on up as we move into our time of communion. Coming back to the table is where we rediscover the meaning of life. Coming back to the table is where we rediscover and are re enchanted with the meaning of life. You're trying to figure out this morning, maybe you are. What's the meaning of life? Come to the table know Christ, who it is that we live for as a people. We all live for something or someone. We all live for someone else, not just for ourselves, whether we like it or not, but the place of ultimate knowledge of meaning from a intimate space, the place of knowing and communion is the place where we experience the Logos himself. And just like the cross The table is a place of self-denial because it reminds us that we don't live for ourselves alone. When we come to the table, it is a denial of ourselves and saying, I submit my story to the greater one. We reflect back. Why? Because it helps us remember the story that we are a part of. It changes us in the present because it's an opportunity for transformation. Something mysterious happens when we encounter the presence of God at the table. He is with us. Not just his omnipresence, but his glory. And he says, come to the table. I'm here. I'm waiting for you. This is my table. I've invited you into my home. Just as Rublev's Trinity icon that I shared about before has a picture of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, on the back side of the table. There's an empty space at the front where it's almost as though the painting's beckoning you to come. Participate in communion. Find meaning. Know meaning. And then it also is a picture of the future life that is to come. That in Christ's broken body and in his blood poured out, there is the... Arrow that is pointing to the ultimate restoration of all things, the pointing to resurrection life. Meaning, friends, is not found in success or happiness. It is a person to discover. The person is Jesus of Nazareth, the Logos.